0: Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from The Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. An accumulation of shocks in recent years, which include the financial crash and the Great Depression, along with the election of Donald Trump, the departure of the UK from the European Union, and indeed the current war in Ukraine, not to mention the broader unease caused by longer-term phenomena such as the rise of populism, autocracy, and indeed increasing inequality. All of them have led to a widespread feeling that we now live in a a less stable and a more uncertain world. But if this is actually true, what has caused it to happen? In her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge University, offers a deep analysis of how we got here that brings together many different strands, including great power rivalry, fossil fuel dependency, globalised markets and democratic fault lines. Helen, who some of you may know from the excellent and now sadly defunct Talking Politics podcast, joins me today to discuss her fascinating and thought-provoking book. Helen, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Hugh. The title of your book refers to, I suppose, the disruptions and the shocks that we've all experienced and we're still experiencing in the 21st century. So it's a diagnosis, you could describe it as, but it's also a history of how we got here, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. It's trying to. I, I would say it's, it's trying to give a long history to the 2010s, would be one way of summing up, I think, what I was trying to do.
0: I'd also see it, to some extent, is it fair to say as a kind of a corrective to some of the received wisdoms of the history of the last few decades and how we arrived at this point?
1: Yeah, I think that if you just like focus on two things, um, Brexit and Trump, because in some sense they were the big 2016 shocks and the things that people most remember about the disruptions of that decade, even though perhaps they're not the right ones to put centrally. I think that what I wanted to do was to say that Brexit was a lot more complicated and a lot less insular to British politics um, than the ways in which it was often talked about and that it had to be seen as part of a much bigger story about the European Union. Not that British politics wasn't part of the story, but that it it was only one part of the story. And then in regard to the Trump presidency, I think I wanted to suggest, in terms of starting from a different position, that actually we should think about big changes that happened to American power during that decade and that Trump was symptom in that story more than cause. Now, that isn't to say that some of the things that Trump did weren't quite disruptive. But if you just take one example, I think another American president would have turned towards a trade and technological war with China after 2016, that Trump wasn't really an outlier or a driving force there. I mean, Another president wouldn't have conducted that trade war over Twitter in the same way, um, but I don't actually think the substance of the policy would have been that different.
0: So, do you think then that we overemphasize the parallels which many people have drawn between Brexit and Trump? You know that in both cases there are a kind of a, a native populist backlash against the um, against what happened during the crash and an anti-elite populist nativist backlash, and and that therefore they share a kind of a DNA. You think it's more complicated than that?
1: Well, I think that there's certain things that they have got in common. And I think that migration is part of the story in both cases. But I think it's a pretty different kind of politics of migration because what you saw in the United States with Trump, the issue that he was probably most able, able to use most successfully in winning the Republican nomination was the issue of unauthorized migration into the United States, the US Mexico um, border. And he was able to use that as a way of making a uh, his kind of critique, if, you, if we can use that word, in regard to um, Trump of the way that power worked in Washington in ways that he, you know, constructed as being um, elitist and out of touch with ordinary Americans. That that kind of um, narrative, and he obviously used it for you know extreme nativist purposes as well in terms of the attacks that he made on Mexican immigrants in um, in particular. If you take Brexit, obviously. There became a quite important, in fact, fairly central migration issue, the issue of freedom of movement within the the European um, Union um, and the impact that had. I wouldn't say it had an impact on um, Cameron's initial decision or initial promise of holding a referendum. So when he made the Bloomberg speech in January 2013, he's very much focused on financial services and how to protect Britain's position as a non-Euro member Within the single market, but obviously by the time he gets to the renegotiation, it becomes pretty central him wanting concessions about freedom of movement and then not being available because of the way in which the rules work in the in the um, single market. But that I think, even if even if though it's the same issue in a way, migration, it's still got a structural difference. And the issue in the UK case was the fact that there was a constitutionalized if you like, single market in which changes couldn't be made in response to democratic politics um because the rules were set they're in the treaties if you look at it in the united states case in the trump case trump was able to say look the politicians could be doing something but they're choosing not to do anything about it because they're not on your side so even even though the migration issue's got some parallels the politics around it and the structures around the politics around it i think were playing out in quite different ways and
0: also although it was a shock at the time for many, the referendum result. I mean, you make the point in the book that the the seeds of of Brexit, the the roots of Brexit go back much deeper and much further into the preceding two decades, really, of British politics. And I think you actually make the point that, you know, there could have been a breakpoint earlier if some of the I think at one point Blair had promised a referendum on one of the treaties. And if that had happened, that could have been the equivalent.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I th- that is that is the great, in a way, counterfactual moment um, that Blair makes his promise of holding the referendum. He doesn't want to do it. This is on the constitutional um, treaty. He makes the promise, I think, in 2004 because he realises that the argument that says, oh, actually, European Union membership doesn't really have any constitutional implications, which is the argument that had been used uh, about... Um, in some sense, about Britain's EU membership from the start um, by those who wanted it, and then had been used about the Maastricht Treaty in terms of the way that that was um, ratified. It's pretty difficult to make that argument when the treaty is called the Constitutional Treaty. And despite the fact that Blair held out against this referendum promise for a while, he had to make it. He was saved from having to redeem the promise by the fact that the French and the Dutch voters then voted no, voted the Constitutional Treaty down and it was abandoned. Um, but I think it's a really important question if we're trying to understand the length, the history of Brexit, so to speak, to say, well, what would have happened if there'd been a marginal um, yes in France like there was over the Maastricht Treaty and a marginal yes in, in, in the Netherlands and that Blair had had to hold this referendum in 2005. Remember, this is you know, sort of 18 months or so it would have been, that's a bit lower, two years after the Iraq war. It's pretty difficult to see how he was winning that referendum. And at that point, I think it would have produced some kind of crisis for Britain's membership, because or the United Kingdom's membership, I should say, is because the United Kingdom always had options about what to do about European Union being inside the European Union by not being in the eurozone. That just means that there are more choices. There might not be great choices, but there's still more choices than if you've got your debt denominated in in the European currency. And I think maybe you've got views on this, Hugh, from the Irish position experience i think it would have been quite hard if that referendum had gone down in 2005 to turn around to uk voters and just say okay you're going to vote on it again
0: no we're, we're used to that idea here you know that's happened a couple of times here. i know but
1: what kind of con- but you you can say that some kind of concessions were kind of made maybe to ireland particularly maybe about the lisbon treaty what kind of concessions were going to be made that would have made any difference mm. to the uk in that position in in
0: 2000 and i think you're right. i think you know to be to- perfectly pragmatic and realistic about it, there's an issue of scale. You know, nobody talked about going back to France once they'd rejected that referendum twice. And that's as much about France's, you know, uh, critical mass within the European Union, which is not a critical mass which Ireland shares. And that's just real politic, I think.
1: But on the other hand, you could say that France did have to suck it up because essentially it just gets repackaged as the Lisbon Treaty. And then the French are told this time that they're not going to hold a referendum on it this time. It's just going to be ratified by Parliament. I think actually... And I spent some time on this in the book. I think that did actually quite a lot of damage to the French party system, the way in which the Lisbon Treaty, which was essentially just a constitutional treaty repackaged that the French voters had rejected, was then pushed through the French parliament.
0: So I want to talk in a little while about these, some, some of these crises which the EU has faced as well as the UK. But I think it's important to say that the span of the book is much greater than that. And it goes really back well into the, into the middle of the 20th century, at least, And reading it, I think it's fair to say that the pivotal moment, the kind of crux point in the story that you tell, it centres, as much of the book does, on questions of energy and energy security and access to oil. And the key point is the the collapse of the post-war financial settlement, the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s, the oil crisis and the changes which flowed from that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of changes that take place in the 1970s that turn out to be pretty significant, including, I would say, as well, the change in China, which is going to come later in the decade of um, the, the Deng Xiaoping pushing China towards market reforms and, and long term integration into the, into the world economy.
0: So in relation to that one of the things I find fascinating is I think and I include myself in this criticism people oversimplify things when they say stuff about the the recurring wars in the Middle East are are all about oil and in some ways they are mm-hmm. but but the detail that you go into about who's doing the fighting and who needs the oil are very interesting for example you point out that you know one of the things about the United States is that not only has it been the preeminent power, global power for uh, most of modern history, but it's also for large, some periods of that time, it's been self-sufficient in oil. So the question of mm. who needs the oil and who guarantees, for example, Europe's access to the oil and more recently China's access to the oil is a kind of a complex one, isn't it? No,
1: absolutely. I mean, one of the really interesting turning points, I think, in the in the whole story of Western interests, if you like, and energy interests in the Middle East, is when the British leave, um, when they withdraw from what's called East of Suez. and the Americans are aghast about that. I mean, this is only you know, f- what, fifteen years um, after the Suez crisis, um, when the Americans have been quite happy to tell um, the British that they're behaving like a reckless, hubristic, you know, imperial power, and they should get their acts together, and we're going to stop you doing what you want to do, and then by the end of the nineteen sixties. Um, the, the Johnson administration absolutely doesn't want Britain to to pull out from its remaining military commitments um, in the in the Gulf, because then the United States is confronted at just the moment when it's becoming a significant oil importer um, itself. Well, who is going to look after Western secu- energy security interests um, in, in 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 the Middle East and in the Persian Gulf in particular? And the first answer to that question is well. We can't do it, the United States, I mean, by that, because we're effectively, as they were, trapped in Vietnam and we're not going to start another war in Eurasia. So the answer becomes we'll rely on the Saudis and we'll rely on Iran. Um, Well, as we know, the US-Saudi relationship has got a lot of complications to it, to put it mildly. Uh, And then by the end of the 1970s, um, Iran is no longer the Shah of Iran, it's the Ayatollah, it's the... um, The revolutionary regime um, in Tehran and the United States and and Iran are enemies. And from that point on, then the United States is both dependent on Middle Eastern oil and it hasn't really got a strategy in the Middle East for how it's going to protect its interests. And in a way, I think you can then see the 90s and up to the second Iraq war as an attempt really by Washington to use military power to reshape the Middle East. In ways that is conducive, the ways that are conducive to Western energy security in general and American energy security in particular. But it doesn't work. You know, Iraq turns out you know, to be a much, much bigger problem than, than the Americans envisage. And then the next juncture comes when the United States, sort of from sort of the first half of the 2010s um thanks to the shale oil boom has got the prospects of not complete energy independence but a much higher level of energy independence than it has had or at least a lower level of energy dependence um let's um say but in some ways that just complicates its choices in the middle east even more because it antagonizes the uh, antagonizes saudi arabia it makes a lot of disruption it brings a lot of disruption into the us saudi relationship. It leads to the Saudis trying to bankrupt shale oil producers Um, in the United States. When that doesn't really work, they turn to an alliance with the Russia, which is now the basis of OPEC plus, um, which is actually quite a constraint um, on world oil markets. It's a constraint on what Biden can do in terms of his climate policy, Um, I would say. And while all this is going on, we've got China becoming the um, largest oil importer in the world. Uh, And a lot of the oil that's now coming out of the Persian Gulf is going to Asia and China in particular. And the United States Navy is effectively responsible for guaranteeing security around that. That's quite a hard sell, obviously, back home, if, if American citizens really understand that that's what the dynamic is. But the alternative is, well, does Washington really want? Beijing to be responsible for providing its own naval energy security.
0: But is that not ultimately going to prove untenable, though, with a situation where the United States guarantees the security of China's energy supply, particularly given the way the world has been turning over the last few years?
1: Yeah, because obviously the other side of this, if you look at it from Beijing's point of view, is is that that's not not a very um, happy place to be in either. They might balk at the moment of the idea of having to project Chinese naval power in the Persian um, Gulf but they've very always been worried since particularly I would say since the second Iraq war they've been worried about the idea that the US Navy could essentially um, block their access particularly um, down the Malacca Strait to the oil that comes to them out of the Persian Gulf and indeed from Africa for that uh, matter and I think that is part of the reason why Xi Jinping has been as keen as he is on the Belt and Road Initiative, effectively establishing a land route that could go from Pakistan at the bottom, the very bottom of the Persian Gulf, or just around the corner of it, really, take the oil up through pipelines and then into China um, through the Xinjiang province. But the fact that it's Xinjiang is obviously significant in itself because that, is part of the reason why for Xi Jinping that is such a huge geopolitical question as well as just a question of the Ouija's um, there. And indeed, you might then see his attitude towards the Ouija's seeing we don't want turbulence in this particular part of China because we're trying to use it for geopolitical purposes to reduce our vulnerability to American
0: power and then to go back and paralleling those changes which you talk about since the since the 1970s the economic shock of the oil crisis in the 1970s gives rise to some pretty profound changes in the way that the international uh, monetary system is organized mm. and also the way in which many western capitalist societies Order their their own societies, their their own economies, and there's a kind of a there's a shorthand for this, which which I I think you don't like very much. Some people call it neoliberalism in the 1980s, Reaganism and Thatcherism, and all of that. And then after the fall of communism, what's called globalization, uh, the most important part of which maybe is the rise of China as an economic superpower. But you kind of think that the way we um, you propose that the way we think about this, the way I've described it actually just now, in fact, leaves out some very important facts about how this came to be, because we think of neoliberalism as a political or intellectual project, but you think it's actually rooted in those, in those factors you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, I think I have two sort of, sort of reasons to be why why I'm a bit sceptical about the the neoliberalism narrative. The first is, as you said, is, is that actually, particularly the way I think the term was initially used, which, you know, has a, a legacy is, is it was seen as a, an ideological term. It was seen as a, sort of the ideology, if you like, of Friedrich Hayek and um, Milton Friedman, the monetarist economist, um, that what had happened in the 1970s was an ideological rejection of state intervention in favour of markets. And obviously there's something that's right about that in terms of certain kinds of markets, not least obviously international financial markets, become a lot, lot more important from the 70s than they were in the 1950s and the the 1960s. My issue here is, is that I think that it underplays the material forces that brought about those crises of the 70s, um, including what was going on in the euro dollar markets in London, but just as importantly, what's going on in energy. So I don't think that you can understand the whole set of economic crises of the 1970s without understanding the oil price um, shocks and the Fundamental change that the United States becoming a large oil importer um, created. So, if we say Bretton Woods began in 1944, it was created in 1944. That was a world in which the United States had was oil self-sufficient, largely anyway. Um, The world in which Bretton Woods ended was the world in which the United States was on its way to being the world's largest oil importer, and that meant the monetary system, I think, had to had to change too the international monetary system, I mean by that. I think the other issue I have with the neoliberalism term is is that a certain, as well, perhaps a little bit later on than when it started being used as a term, it kind of became a a catch-all phrase describing, it seemed to me, everything that the Thatcher and Reagan governments had done. It was a sort of an Anglo-American way of doing economic um, policy. But then one of the things that was treated as fairly fundamental to that was an obsession with being anti-inflationary with price stability. But actually, it was in the Eurozone and before that in Germany, West Germany with the Bundesbank, that the real obsession with price stability developed in the 1980s. And it was there in the way in which West Germany dominated the exchange rate mechanism. And it was taken into the Euro via the rules of the Maastricht Treaty and the, um, the fact that the in lots of ways, that the European Central Bank was even more like the Bundesbank than the Bundesbank um, was, and that actually you see rather more cavalier attitudes towards inflation, particularly actually in Britain in the latter part of Thatcher's um, time in, in office. I mean, the summer before Thatcher was, you know, boost, kicked out, inflation in in Britain was back to ten percent. It was back at the level in which it had started under the Thatcher. Years it came down because Britain joined the European Exchange Rate um, Mechanism. So I think some of the Anglo-American economic policy in the 80s represents neoliberalism. Runs into the well, the thing that's supposedly distinct. or well, one of the things that supposedly distinguishes neoliberalism, um, this obsession with price stability. It, they're not the place that becomes most obsessed about price stability in the in the in the latter part of the 80s and the 90s.
0: I suppose there's a there's another theory in play here, and it's one that's perhaps quite uh, relevant to us at the moment, as we see inflation return in a lot of Western societies for the first time in in many years. Is the is the the kind of the the analysis then of where the inflation was coming from, and the the solution for it? You have a, a very interesting theory. I'd never come across it before, even though it's more than two thousand years old. Of democratic excess and aristocratic excess as being. Um, symptoms of societies which are, I suppose, going off the rails to some extent or are, 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 are in trouble. And the theory of democratic excess, maybe you actually, rather than me trying to explain it, maybe you could explain it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a number of reasons why I was interested in these concepts of um, these old concepts of democratic excess and aristocratic excess. But one thing that's really striking about the 1970s is, is that there was a whole way of describing democracies, Western democracies being in crisis in the 1970s that really is a version of this democratic excess argument. And in, there's one particularly influential report that um, was published by the Trilateral Commission. It's called The the Crisis of Democracies, uh, Crisis of Democracy. I can't remember now whether it's a singular or the plural. And one of the, 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 the authors um, of that um, report, the American political scientist, Samuel Huntington, used the term democratic excess. And what he meant by that or what he meant by it when he applied it to the 1970s, was that he thought that Western democracies had reached the point where they showed a fundamental flaw, and that fundamental flaw was their propensity to inflation uh, and their propensity to create more demands from citizens for what the state could do than the state could deliver, and that in trying to meet these in his sense, unrealistic expectations, what the state would do would be to create ever more inflationary conditions. And that was a narrative that was put quite firmly, particularly from the right on the crisis of the 1970s. And obviously, it was tied up with certain ideas, which had some pertinence, I think, in in Britain for reasonable reasons, um, that the trade unions or certain trade unions, I should say, were very influential, and that they made it impossible for the parties, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, to govern, that in some sense, in, in the British case, both the the Conservatives had been brought down supposedly by the trade unions in the, the Mine Workers Union in 1974, and that Labour had been brought down by the Winter of Discontent and the strikes um, in, in 1979. And I think if you then think about the arguments that were made for central bank independence in the 1980s and the arguments that were made for making the European Central Bank as independent as it was in creating monetary union, the basic assumption was you don't want democratic politicians deciding interest rates. You don't want them taking monetary decisions because when they do it, they're always being tempted into inflation. They're always being tempted into making um, interest rates too low so i would say that in some sense the the monetary union project did rest on a on a democratic excess assumption i think it's wrong because i think the that the problem of inflation in the 1970s um simply just can't be separated from the question of energy inflation and it can't be separated from the question of the oil price um shocks and actually the reforming governments, not least Mrs. Thatcher's government in in the United Kingdom, that tried to check inflation, they didn't run into anything like the same difficulties that the Samuel Huntington thesis would have suggested that they did, and that wasn't true in other European countries um, as well. Is those um, in, you know, in 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 um, in France for you know for instance, where Mitterrand did try to um, resist Francois Mitterrand, the French Socialist president. Um, did try to do have an economic policy that wasn 't all about being obsessed with um inflation um but when the crisis moment came he 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 backed down so there was when european governments west european governments got serious about inflation they just didn 't have anything like the same problems that they should have done if democratic if democracy has such a structural pretend, propensity to producing inflation And the change, I think, in the 1980s, once you get past 1981, early perhaps 1982, is is that oil prices come down. Is it just that the whole um, monetary and energy environment just becomes a lot easier for um, democracies and that we can understand the rise and fall of inflation through the energy lens more clearly than we can through these other lenses? That's, That's what my argument is there.
0: And I suppose then the polar opposite of that, in some ways, is the idea of aristocratic mm. excess, which could be described in one way as some of the um, the changes in the economic structures of societies that we've seen over the past couple of decades. You know, the shorthand is the 1%, the rise of a of a super rich mm. plutocratic class and widening inequality.
1: No, absolutely. I would say that that, that slogan of... Um... We are the 99 percent was a, a perfect example of, of a slogan being used to critique the idea of aristocratic excess, and the, I think that what happened in the in the 1970s was is that rather than democracies becoming crippled by democratic excess, that they just became ever more susceptible to the problem of aristocratic excess, um, in which fewer and fewer bits of particularly economic questions but not a few few economic questions, but not only, I think, economic questions, um, became contested in democratic politics. Certain things were put out of reach, including, I would say, taxing the the super rich. Uh, um, And the way in which the world economy worked supported that. I'd give another example in the United States, which would be the way in which that integrating china into the world economy was presented as something that was just like a no brainer for the um for the the united states that united states of course the united states would gain more than china would um from um this but actually that what you saw was that in the terms of um those who were working in the manufacturing um sector that was a pretty significant job loss that job losses that went on in the early 2000s whilst those uh uh, who were at the corporate executive um, level in companies that then relocated production to China? Let's say a company like Apple. Um, the, the people at the top there did extraordinarily well out of it. That it actually was a there was actually a class conflict, if you like, at the heart um, of the what do we do about China um, policy, and it wasn't one that they, the workers in the manufacturing sector won.
0: So, one of the reasons why I I, I think this. That- these ideas are very interesting. Is they they help in applying some kind of framework to some of the things which people have found puzzling over the over the last few decades. Take, for example, the sort of north south divide on fiscal policy that you get within the EU between the countries of the of the Mediterranean and Germany and some of the countries of the north, or indeed the way that classic ideological differences between so called parties of the left and so called parties of the right have have blurred, or maybe even flipped on their heads, uh, where formerly the parties of the left were seen as anti-elitist and now they come under criticism, whether that be just you know a, a piece of political strategy or not, no matter how well justified it is, they are effectively criticised as being parties of the elite and parties of the right become the parties of the, the, the silent majority, I
1: suppose. Yeah, I think one of the um, interesting things here, I think that um, David was, um and I had a conversation about this in one of the last um, talking politics, actually, I think it's the one where we were discussing um, disorder, um is is that on the one hand that you have parties of the left that became less committed to redistributive politics and more um open to corporate interests i think that that's particularly obviously most clearly true in the united states just because of the scale of the you know the amount of the amount of money that's required to run for election you know in the um in the united states You do see a backlash obviously against it. I mean at its heart that's what Bernie Sanders candidature was about the first time he ran in in 2016 against Hillary Clinton was to say American politics has become the American republic in that sense has become oligarchic and it's not democratic any longer and that we need to restore democracy to the um, republic. Meanwhile I think that the some of the parties on the right, and I think that perhaps the Republicans in the United States is perhaps the best example here. Again, then started to try to use the aristocratic excess thesis in relation to culture, cultural um, questions, and sort of then turn the party of the left, in this case the Democrats, into the the cultural elite. Now, I would say that there is a long history to this kind of politics. Um, In a way, if you go back to the American populists um, in the 1890s, um, who actually were themselves often um, farmers, so actually that they they belonged to the class whose class interests they were trying to articulate, which obviously isn't the case with someone like Donald Trump. Um, is is that you can see the two sides of it. On the one hand, you kind of like make a set of like more nativist attacks around culture, and you say there's kind of like a the people who are the true Americans, etc. Uh, and then on the other hand, you're making a, an economic attack uh on a, a on a financial class of people who are taken to exercise real power rather than the ordinary and, and these two things, I think the way in which a certain kind of cultural nativism um and a Let's attack those who are uh, not only extraordinarily rich, um, but are using their wealth in order to augment their political power. I think those two kinds of politics quite often historically go go
0: together. So it's not necessarily new that
1: no, I I think I, I think there is a difference. I mean, I think there is a big difference when somebody like Donald Trump does it, who is himself an extraordinarily rich man, who is really a member of the same. You know, he's not an insider in the sense of uh, the fact that he's, you know, he, there was obviously his whole style set him apart mm. from whatever we want to describe them um, as his fellows in the oligarchic class, if we're going to use that language for a moment. Whereas the farmers who constituted the Populist Party in the United States in the 1890s, they were representing their own interests. Um, but nonetheless, there's a way in which the kind of arguments that Trump was using, the kind of language he was using, I think echoed the kind of um, language that the American populists use, both to mobilise a language of class and to mobilise a language of nativism at the same time.
0: If we were having this conversation 20 years ago, I think that the historical event that would seem to have been most important to us possibly would have been the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Soviet bloc mm. and the uh, the collapse of Soviet the Soviet form of, of communism at, ne- at least. And while that figures in in the book, it you seem to emphasise far more the continuities across the period and across that particular event. I suppose most obviously, and this is a subject that's obviously in the news a lot at the moment, in terms of German Ostpolitik and the increasing reliance of of Germany mm. and 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 other parts of Europe on on Russian. Energy resources, how do you fit the, the the fall of communism into all this?
1: Well, I think that the end of the Soviet Union itself and the end of Soviet rule in Eastern Europe in 1989 are pretty important junctures. I wouldn't want to suggest that they um, weren't if we take the end of the Soviet rule in Eastern Europe first um, because these the former Warsaw Pact countries you know will by two thousand and four be joining the European Union, um, that fundamentally changes the European Union. It changes the geopolitics of the European Union. I would suggest that it had already been somewhat changed by having a reunified Germany as opposed to just West Germany um, in it. Um, But I think a European Union that includes Poland is a very different European Union geopolitically than one that doesn't include Poland I think if we look at then at the, the question of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, is I think what is significant here is that something endures, which is as you say um, the the what was the West German became the German-Russian, so a German-Soviet and then German-Russian energy relationship that you know begins in the, well it begins where oil was concerned in the nineteen sixties really, and it's really cemented by gas um, from the seventies. And you might say that in some sense that those pipelines that took um, Soviet oil and gas to um, Germany, to West Germany, was the material basis of Ostpolitik, the turn that West Germany made to a different, less confrontational um, stance towards the the Soviet Union under Willy Brandt's chancellorship. So that's the thing that carries on into the post-Cold War world because Germany doesn't say, "Okay, we don't want that relationship any longer. Quite the contrary. By the 2000s, it would double down on that relationship. The thing that changes, obviously, though, is is that these pipelines that go from um, the Soviet Union, what was the Soviet Union, into Eastern Europe, once it becomes post-Soviet Union, they now go through the independent states of Belarus, less significant, but very significant, Ukraine. So from the point of view of of Russia, then Russia is now managing a pipeline issue um, with Ukraine. Uh, And in the end, in 2005, that the German government, the the red green government led by Gerhard Schroeder, right at the end of its time in office, agreed um, with um, Putin um, to start moving to eliminate Ukraine from the transit of Russian gas, at least from russia into into germany and by agreeing to build the first of the nord stream pipelines which would bypass ukraine by taking the gas under the baltic sea and so it's the conjunction of the way in which the energy relationship itself ensues but the geopolitics around it changes with the dissolution of the soviet union because now it's all about ukraine um and it puts ukraine in a uh, it puts Ukraine in one hand in an advantageous position, I think, while the pipelines are still going through there with some volume of gas going through them, because Russia has to pay Ukraine transit fees in order to use these pipelines. But as Putin makes his move to try to change that, then it puts Ukraine in a very vulnerable, um, and it put, it puts Ukraine, I think, in a very vulnerable position, and it isn't even just using the Baltic Sea to bypass. Um, Ukraine, It's using the Black Sea as well to take Russian gas into southern Europe under the Black Sea and coming out um, at the moment through Turkey. And how
0: important or significant a contributory factor is that to the war that we're seeing right now?
1: I think this is a really difficult question, Hugh, in the sense of can we say that there is some point in which these gas pipeline decisions were dealt with differently not in Moscow, I mean in European capitals, where this wouldn't have happened. I don't know what the answer to that question is. What I am pretty much convinced by is that you can't do what the European Union really, I would say, led very much by Germany and France, but in particular by Germany on this issue did, which is to say to Ukraine which really the position from at least 2009 is we are prepared to help Putin bypass you with nord stream on the one hand we're not allowed we're going to allow you to come into nato so the germans and the french vetoed nato accession in 2008 but yes we do want to let you have a strong econ- encourage you to have a strong economic relationship with the european union some sort of essentially an associate membership um, path, and those three things just didn't go together. If you were going to try to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union economically, there had to be a security underpinning to it, and there had to be, I think, a pipeline underpinning um, to it. And and so, I think one of the difficulties there's been is that it encouraged Ukrainian um, government to. Think that things that were actually extraordinarily difficult to bring about could be brought about more easily, and I think it's it is pretty revealing that if you look at other East European countries, um, so if you take the, the Warsaw Pact, former Warsaw Pact members that joined European Union like Poland and Hungary, Czech Republic in two thousand and four, they'd been in NATO for some time before that. If you look at the Baltics, they joined. European Union and NATO in the, in the same year. I know it wasn't the case that Ukraine was trying to join the European Union in 2013, 14, but it was effectively a version of associate membership and it wasn't in NATO. And I think that that of all the places where you could have tried to make that work, I think Ukraine was just not the place. It was just getting things the wrong way around.
0: And I know it's incredibly hard to kind of analyze this in any depth right now at the moment in this, in this moment, but I was talking to our Berlin correspondent on a podcast earlier this week about this change that happened over the course of really a few days over last weekend. I was listening to Adam Tooze, who I know you know, um, speaking on a New York Times podcast about the same subject, and both of them really seemed to feel that this was a this was a really significant break with that very long position that Germany had held. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I honestly think that Germany has really upended its fifty years of foreign policy over the past week, um, that because I do think that the the Russia energy relationship is the material underpinning of, or the, the then Soviet um, now Russia um, relation energy relationship was the underpinning of Ostpolitik, uh, and Merkel defended Nord Stream two as we know in the in the face of very considerable criticism including actually in the summer of 2020 um within the with her own within her own party and when germany now says it's going to build or when schultz says Germany's going to build liquid natural gas ports um, that means it's going to be able to import american seaborne gas and that means for the future i think that the United States and Russia are going to compete about selling gas to Germany because it's not like Germany's just switched the taps off where Russian gas is concerned either. Um, Generally, European countries have bought more Russian gas over the past week than they did in the week before. Um, And Nord Stream 2 might now be over. I don't think it can't come back, I don't think. But Nord Stream 1 is still running. There's no talk at the moment about shutting Nord Stream 1 um, down so Germany's at the same time made a very big move, but at the same time, it can't undo everything that rapidly. Um, so we, we're we going to, in some sense, live with an energy position between Germany and Russia where the old status quo is still there at the, at the same time as it's, in some sense, been, been shatter All the assumptions around it have been shattered.
0: And obviously we don't know what's going to happen. On, the other factor is we don't really know what's going to happen on the ground in Ukraine. In the in the coming days, weeks, and months, but what impact, if any, does that then have upon another subject of the book, which is the European Union, which I feel is a is a project which you uh, you observe with some scepticism uh, from from time to time. Is that fair?
1: I would say I'm sceptic about the the any teleological aspects to the European Union. The idea that there's some that there's some inexorable movement going on to ever close the mm. union. I'm pretty sceptical about that and I'm sceptical about the idea of how much there really can, at least for the foreseeable future, be some, if you like, democratically legitimating idea of there being a European people um, who could authorize in some sense a democratic European um union. I think if we look at it in terms of the geopolitics of the the situation for the European Union at the moment. On the one hand, I think you could say that this has been quite unifying. You know, there was a big, big gap, I think, between the way in which, say, the Poles thought about the Ukrainian question compared to the way in which the Germans and the French thought about the Ukrainian question even a month ago. And and now they're obviously much, much closer to uh, each other because what Putin's done has been such a shock, I think, to the French and the German governments. Uh, you know, and After all, both Schultz, Schultz and um, Macron invested considerable personal credibility in trips to Moscow to try to find a diplomatic solution. On the other hand, I would say that some of the geopolitical difficulties that the European Union has are kind of baked in just because of the size of it and the fact that different countries have got very different geography in relation to the, the two states that in very different ways, I should stress here, very different ways pose, if you like, border issues for the European Union. So Russia, obviously, on the one side, but also Turkey. So if you look at what's been going on with Turkey, particularly in relation to the Eastern Mediterranean Turkish intervention in Libya over the last few years, you can see pretty clear differences between France and Germany there. I mean, France is a Mediterranean, in part a Mediterranean country, obviously, and Germany, Germany isn't. For the French, is that it's actually looked like usually more important for the EU to have an external orientation that goes deals with the Mediterranean and with North Africa than it is with Eastern Europe. I think some of that has changed just because Macron has really having invested so much in the idea that what the European Union needed was a reset with Russia, that project has come come crashing down. But I think whilst we, will, whilst we should expect to see more consensus than we've seen for a few years, or perhaps for perhaps longer than a, a few years, the underlying structural difference between countries with geopolitical interests that are primarily orientated around Russia and those that are primarily orientated around the Mediterranean, I think, haven't gone away.
0: Because there is a theory, I've heard it expressed this week, there is a theory uh, often expressed by people who are in favour of closer a closer European Union, taking on board your points about the democratic deficit and different strategic interests of different parts of, of the Union, is that changes are forged in crisis and therefore this is a crisis so changes will be forged. I'm not convinced by that. What do you think?
1: I think if you if you're talking about the um, the eurozone, for instance, I think that ultimately became true. It took a long time for it to, it to become true, uh, but you know, by the time we get to 2015, there was a very different European Central Bank than the one that began you know, the eurozone um, crisis, not being able to you know, do anything much meaningful um, to 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 bring down the 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 um, the cost of borrowing from you know, Greece, Portugal, um, Ireland, Italy, et cetera. Um, I think that we can expect there to be um, a drive on the geopolitical side of it to try to find more unity uh, and to create the conditions for a, a, a more commonality. And as I say, because I think that in their very different ways, both german ambitions towards russia or the german position towards russia would be perhaps a better way of putting that and macron's ambitions towards russia have been crushed by what's happened is maybe that the possibilities for um unity in dealing with russia are gro- significantly greater than they were i would just say though i, I think that finding common remedies to the eurozone is pretty difficult but it's not wasn't in impossible i mean there's clear differences between the the states that are might be considered creditor states and states that were considered debtor states during the eurozone crisis it, um, itself but you can kind of find some middle ground i mean made more complicated i would suggest by politics but and democratic politics but you can reach compromises it's, it's a lot harder to reach compromises about geography in fact <laughs> you know it, 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 you can't change the geography of the, the European Union. You can't change the fact that the, the 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 continent of Europe looks different if you're sitting in Warsaw than if you're sitting in 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 Paris,
0: mm.
1: or indeed if you're sitting in then then if you're sitting in Dublin for that matter as well. Indeed,
0: indeed, indeed. And then, I mean, the the book does such a good job of drawing our attention, certainly my attention, to the interplay between really existential questions of access to energy, which are important for any any contemporary society and their their impacts on, on the economies and the societies and, and in some cases, the democracies, democracies or other governing systems. And then, as we approach the end of the book, of course, there is this question, which is that we are faced with this um, imperative to entirely change the basis upon which the world finds and uses energy itself. And so that becomes, as, as as many people have pointed out before, absolutely the most existential question. And it seems to me, reading the book, also perhaps the most disruptive question in in of all in a very very long time in terms of what it means for 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 the world you described.
1: No, I entirely I entirely agree with you. You, uh, I mean, we are committed through net zero commitments to turn upside down the entire way in which we are, the entire, as you say, the material basis of our lives, at least in Western um, countries, the way in which economies work, the way in which we use energy um, in um, in daily life, or you could say hourly life. Um, and we're committed to doing it over what's really not, in the big scheme of things, a very long time period now, 30, um, 30 years. And doing it depends upon, succeeding in doing it depends on technology that doesn't yet exist. I mean, this is like, I find it sometimes even hard to find the words to describe what kind of transformation I think it actually amounts to. I just don't think there's anything in, 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 in human history that looks anything like this. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be navigated. But I, I think that it does mean that we need to understand the enormity of what's uh, ahead of us, and and what it might, and what 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 it might entail, uh, what that might mean in terms of geopolitical disruption, what that might mean in terms of, for instance, Chinese power, what that might mean in terms of the politics of distribution within democratic politics, what it's like, perhaps particularly in Western countries, um, where you have to move to what might be called more politics of sacrifice rather than a politics of chasing economic growth all the time. I think that these are things that we have to learn to think about and in some sense learn to do in order to for us to, 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 to go with this. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's not necessary. Quite the, quite, quite the contrary. I just think that we need to understand
0: that it's revolutionary to do this. We're kind of willfully blind to that at the moment, aren't we? I think, seems to me. <laughs> I think we're
1: not as blind as perhaps we were. Um, I I think that the, the pandemic in some sense has made talking about these things easier or at least less difficult than it was. The sense actually that there are, other things that we have to think about in collective life rather than just um having as much growth economic growth as as possible you know we were effectively shutting down the world economy certainly in the first what we think of as the first you know lockdown for for um for some time and that i think i certainly would have thought before that happened well we couldn't we're not going to do that if someone had said to me in late 2019, that this is going to happen and this is what the response in Western countries is going to be. I think I would have been really. That's how we're going to deal with this, but we did. And so I think that in that sense is is that sometimes it can seem that human beings like like burying their heads in the sand, but other times is we get them out the sands and we try and you know face reality and try to deal with it. So I think that that's what we need to be doing where climate change and energy is concerned too.
0: I suppose my, my my question is, and this is this is my last question, really, is that, I mean, that the book is called Disorder, so uh, not just implied, but explicit in that is a sense that things are not working as they should at this moment in which we're living right now, and that is for a variety, that is for a number of reasons. Um, is the world? I, I do wonder sometimes. I mean, uh, this may seem an odd question as we watch horrors happening only a, a few hundred miles away from us, but is the world? Particularly disordered right now, or is it as some as some people suggest? It's actually more peaceful and prosperous than than it ever was.
1: I think the better way of thinking about it, in a way, you, is to th- is to think that actually the bits of order are actually not the norm. That there's actually quite a bit more disorder um, most of the time than we think, but that what happens is is that and this isn't true in other parts of the world so i i really want to make that caveat that at least in in western countries the disorder's been hidden away it bubbles along underneath the, the surface of the earth so to speak and then it erupts from time to time and we see it like more visibly which i think is in some sense like what happened in the 2010s um and that doesn't mean that there weren't what's the way of putting this, I don't want to just say positive developments, but it it clearly wasn't a decade in which it was just like relentless disorder, relentless disruption. It wasn't possible. I mean, it was, for instance, possible for economies, most economies to recover from 2007, 2008. Growth did come back. Actually, in the case of, you know, the United States, it turned out to be the recovery was the longest one, the most continuous one that had ever been um, recorded. But I think that we do need to see... Um, that amidst times when things look quite calm, and which there's perhaps a general rise in, in, in living standards, that there'll be these undercurrents, and some of this is about issues of ecological sustainability. In that, so even the periods, you know, like of, that that are that are seen, like the post-war period in Europe and the United States, post Second World War. I mean by that that are seen sometimes as a kind of like golden era of economic high economic growth or relatively high economic growth and full employment, et cetera, like low low inflation, actually, you know, during those years, um, that's when carbon emissions were really accelerating. You know, there's a big shoot-up in volume of carbon emissions after like 1945. So I think in some sense that what we need is, is, Tools that allow us to see the complexity of things as they are happening, and that will mean the good and the, the more destabilizing mm.
0: I said that was my last question, but i wasn 't fully telling the truth because I know that some of our some yeah. of our listeners are also listeners to the talking politics podcast, uh, which you mentioned earlier, and David Runciman who you participate in it with it, and you um, you 've just recorded or published your your last podcast uh, i 'm sure lots of people will miss it will you miss Will you miss doing it
1: yeah I think that I, I think that I will. Um. <laughs> I think that sometimes uh it's hard uh when the sense that you have to keep having opinions about things and sometimes at least in my case I wanted to like be able to just, like stop and think a bit more without having to have something to say for a long time every week and then it became more recently more likely once um a um a fortnight um so I think that yeah i will I will miss it i think uh, at least some of it and I just to be honest Hugh I'm just at the moment just more really touched and taken aback at times by the things that people have said about it uh, and how important it's been in some people's lives um, particularly I think during lockdown which is not something I'd really registered to me it was always the intense bit of it was always around Brexit because in some sense for a long time that provided a kind of like narrative muscle if you like um, to it but uh, the stories that people put on Twitter or some of the emails that David and I the producer Catherine have had about what this meant to what it meant to them to listen you know, when there was nothing to do but stay in your house, or go for walks and listen to podcasts.
0: The best thing that people could do, I'd say. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. One of the things are dealing with that time. Yeah, it's quite humbling to think that we were able to make some play some part in people's lives at a difficult time for them.
0: Yeah, well, you certainly did that for me, and I know you did it for an awful lot of of other people for over over six years. Th- six years. So, so thanks for that, anyway. But also, thanks for the book, which is which is absolutely terrific, and I highly recommend it. It's called Disorder: Hard Times in the Twenty First Century, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Helen Thompson, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Hugh. I've enjoyed it and Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century is published by Oxford University Press. That is it for today. Thanks to our producer Jennifer Ryan and our engineer JJ Vernon and we're going to be back very soon but do remember that you can always contact us with your views or your questions or any points you'd like to make at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.